This morning is Palm Sunday, a day that we remember as Christ enters into Jerusalem, what is known as the triumphal entry, and yet many have labeled it the tragic entry of Christ as knowing what that week entails, that those hosannas did not last. Maybe the praises that were given to Christ in his entry in Jerusalem did not last longer than the palm branches themselves. There's a poem I sent out this past Friday by Malcolm Guy. I'll read it to you this morning, entitled Palm Sunday. And instead of focusing on those crowds and those people who shouted praises about Christ and a few days later turn against him, shouting for his execution, Malcolm Geit takes the same story and addresses our own hearts with it. And in this sonnet, he says this, Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes. But will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge. The reversal he is bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind the surface flourish that so quickly fades. Self-interest and fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, it barricades. And at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break my resistance and make me your home. May that be true of us this morning on Palm Sunday, true of those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, and true of us every day. Well, if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 this morning, we'll continue our walk through the gospel of Matthew, and this morning we'll finish chapter 22. We'll begin reading in verse 34 and go through the end of the chapter. We'll take a a week off from Matthew and look at the resurrection next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, one of our elders, Steve Stein, will pick up in Matthew chapter 23 uh, as he preaches out of the first few verses uh, there for us on uh, the following Sunday, the last one here in this month. Would you stand in honor of reading God's Word as we read from Matthew chapter 22 and beginning in verse 34? But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Before we begin, let me just say a, a welcome to Mike Carpenter. It's good to see you back. 
Mike's been dying to come back, and it wasn't any, it was just logistical reasons, and we're grateful that he's here. And uh, also want to say a uh, quick, just uh, in a sense, a goodbye to uh, Dave and Deborah Gustafson. They've been with us for several years, most of the time that I've been here, at least, if not all of it. Uh, and, uh, but Dave and Deborah are going to be moving to the Washington coast and uh, have purchased a home out there. And this is their last, Dave's pretty sure, last regular Sunday with us, but they'll be back maybe visiting. Uh, they have family in uh, Boise, and so as they travel through, they might need a halfway point to, to stop over. So if they ask you to stay the night, then let them. Uh, we'd love to have them anytime we can. So grateful to have you. Uh, this Bible that I have been preaching from the last several years is a gift from Dave, and uh, it was an incredible gift, and I'm grateful for it. So I will always remember uh, the gust of sins as long as I preach from this Bible, which at its going rate right now, it's going to last a really long time. So grateful for it. Let me ask you a question <clears throat> this morning as we get started. Does it bother anyone else in here, bother anyone else, because it bothers me, that you cannot get every last drop out of a ketchup bottle? <laughs> Picture the ketchup bottle in your mind, okay? Plastic, glass, whatever it is, you know, the issue. All of a sudden, you're squeezing it onto your hamburger, hot dog, whatever it might be, and it and so you shake it, try to get more to the front, you know, to the end of it, right? But it's got a little hole of which the ketchup needs to come out. There's always that last bit in there. And it's just enough that says you shouldn't waste it. You shouldn't throw it out yet. But even if, and I unscrew the cap, maybe try and shake out a little bit more, you always can't quite get everything in there. Some of you, I'm gathering, actually cut the thing open. And try and get every bit of it. Some of you just, at the first glimpse of it being out, get rid of it and get a new one. We know the same is true for other things that come in a squeeze bottle of sorts, like toothpaste. Can't get every bit of that out either. Anything you can squeeze out of a bottle with a small hole. So just as much as we try, we cannot get all of it out of the bottle. This morning, we're looking at the last questions that Jesus raises or is raised to him by the Pharisees. In his discussion with these religious leaders, they've asked him several questions. He now asks them one. But in our text this morning, Jesus calls us to love him with all that is within us. All of us. Just like we cannot get all of the ketchup out of the bottle, so we too cannot love God with all of our heart. We cannot. Love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We cannot on our own. We need God's help desperately with that. The one who gives us the Shema, the commands to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind is the very one who helps us by means of his love and his power for us. Let us look this morning at the greatest commandment and the greatest offspring. This morning, we look at the first section that gives us the greatest commandment. The Pharisees continue to ask questions of Jesus. They notice this little bit of a competition, these last few questions. We didn't know it was a competition until now. But verse 34 says, the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees. So in their minds, they're next. We're going to come back for round two. And so they send a lawyer all of a sudden, they send one of their guys who knows the law well, a skilled tactician in the law, to come 
and question Jesus one more time. So what is the question that they're going to ask him? The last time, they asked about taxes. Great question, right? Not a great question. But what are they going to ask him this time? About his loyalties to the people of Rome or to the Roman Empire, about the resurrection like the Sadducees did, and who would a woman be married to if she had married multiple husbands in the resurrection? No, they don't come to him asking any question like that. The question from the Pharisees is on the law. And if he has to look at all 613 commands given in the law, which one is the greatest? The question from the Pharisees will tell if Jesus differs radically from them or not. Every rabbi, every teacher had his list of weightier matters of the law, of heavy or difficult commands and lighter commands. Now, it doesn't mean by heavier or difficult or lighter ones that some were viewed as being able to be not obeyed or disregarded, but that some are easier to keep than others. And some are necessary to keep more than others. It's seemingly an easier one to keep, not to kill someone, but a weightier matter of the law for sure if you did. So what will this teacher, this Jesus, who has a big following, what will he say about the law? If you remember several chapters back, he said before something about the law, about not coming to abolish the law, but in order to fulfill it. So what is his position now on the law. To answer them, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, twice in fact. As they come asking him, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus gives it to him in a second that is like it. And for their care, for their love for, devotion to the Pentateuch, Jesus responds quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. First, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 5, which is part of the Shema that is given to Israel. You know it by the beginning of it in verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As it continues on for the next several verses, it speaks about loving our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. These words I command you, Deuteronomy continues on, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This that Jesus quotes would have been so familiar to any Jew. The Shema was, as most we can tell, was supposed to be and was quoted twice daily by good Jews. It was to be written on the doorposts of their home, to be put everywhere so they remember the law of God. They remind themselves of all that God has done for them, of all that He commands of them, and of their love for Him. In the Bible, love is action. You love someone when you act in loyalty and faithfulness. And for Israel, this meant to love faith, meant to love God, meant faithful obedience to the terms of their covenant relationship. Those terms are the laws and commands that 
will make up most of the book of Deuteronomy where the law comes from. And obedience to these laws was never about legalism or trying to earn God's favor. Obedience in the Old Testament is about love, remembering, listening to God and His Word, and remembering what God has commanded. If an Israelite loves God, it will make it easier to listen, absorb God's laws and teachings and guidance. This is why so often the words listen, remember, and love are so tightly connected throughout the Pentateuch. As God is desiring to bless His people and bring them into covenant relationship with Him, to be their God and they be His people, there is a law that governs their relationship to Him, a covenant that binds them, calls them to remember it. And He will remember His portion, and He will be their God, and they will be His people. The shame was meant to keep God's love and loyalty in the forefront of your mind and drive you toward obedience, not out of obligation or duty, but out of love. As often as these commands are in front of you, as often as you remember saying the Shema twice a day, you're reminding yourself of all that God has commanded, how He has brought you out of Egypt, how He delivered you from slavery, of all that God did and wiping out all of the nations that were in the promised land, of all that God has done for His people over the centuries. How helpful for us to have something even that we remind ourselves twice, three times, four times a day to remind us of the gospel, of God's love and loyalty to us. For the Jews, it was on the forefront of their mind, on the post of their homes. Where is it for us? John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus here tells them that the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all that you are, with your whole self, your whole being. This is the great and first commandment. From this one flows everything else. Because when we love God, we are, as John 14 says, having His commandments, keeping them, showing our love for Him, not out of obligation. But as 1 John 4.19 says, we love Him because He first loved us. Because He has initiated love towards us, we respond in love back towards God. Yet God calls us to love Him with all that we are. Jesus here is speaking to these religious leaders because of His love for them, of His love for us. The very fact that He is there in the flesh, speaking to them, shows the covenant commitment and faithfulness that God has promised and delivered to His people. He came to earth, entered Jerusalem, willing to go to the cross for these Pharisees' sins, for our sins, because of His love for us. Jesus goes to the extreme extent to show an example of His love for us. We also ought to love Him with all that we are because He loved us 
with all that he was. When Jesus says, this is the first and great commandment and the second is like it, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 verse 17 and following says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of, sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So instead of seeking to hate your brother or desiring to take vengeance on them or bear a grudge against them, you shall love them as you love yourself. C.S. Lewis, in writing on this in Mere Christianity, ponders on what it means to love someone as your self. How is it, he says, do we love ourselves? And I'm paraphrasing here. How is it that we love others like we love ourselves? How do we love ourselves? We know everything about ourselves. We know everything that we have done. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we deserve judgment. And yet we know that even though we are not perfect and we sin and we deserve judgment, we still want God to show us good. And so loving your neighbor as yourself, he says that is what is meant in the Bible by loving your neighbor, wishing his good. It's not feeling fond of him or saying he is nice when he is not. That's not loving your neighbor. Saying someone is nice when they're not is called lying. It's not called loving your neighbor, but loving your neighbor is wishing his good. Not merely feeling feelings of liking him or feeling fond of him, but of wishing his good, of maybe knowing he's evil, maybe knowing he's not kind, maybe knowing there's a need to have a boundary, not saying he's nice because he's not nice, but is wishing his good, not seeking a revenge, as Leviticus said, not desiring to bear a grudge against him, against the son of your own people, against someone else who's made in the image of God, not desiring their harm, but desiring that they too, no matter who they are, no matter how nice or not nice they might be, that that neighbor of yours comes to love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, knowing that that leads to blessings eternally, ultimately wishing their good, not merely that they get theirs, I had a neighbor once who was not so nice. The very first time I met my neighbor, I had a chainsaw in my hand. I was limbing trees that needed to be limbed that hadn't been limbed for years. And because of that, the trees were starting to actually get so long that they were drawing into the ground and coming back up what looked like other trees. But there was a tree, and it was eventually pulling itself down, and it was awful and bad and hideous. Uh, to look at. And so for the health of the tree and for uh, our own property and what we wanted to see, we decided to limb the trees. Well, my next door neighbor came over and while I'm chainsawing, I think that's a word, he says to me, I've never met this person before in my life. Very first thing out of his mouth is, I don't want to see your house. Nice to meet you. I'm Stephen. And uh, let me turn the chainsaw off. Or should I keep it running? I'm sorry, what did you say? I don't want to see your house. My wife doesn't want to look out of her kitchen window and see your kids playing, see your house, see anything that you're doing. We don't want to see you. Please stop limbing your trees. Funny story. These are my trees. I can sort of do what I like with them. 
I should have asked your permission, maybe, but I didn't because, again, they fall on my side of the line. So nonetheless, all of a sudden, my desire to like this person, let alone want his good or love him, was greatly marred the rest of the time that we lived there, which, thank the Lord, was not all that long after that. But nonetheless, you see the relationship that you say I might have with my neighbor or someone at work who's been really rude to me. And while they might frustrate us and while they might cause us angry or fits or have done worse than merely come up while we're trimming our trees and make a few comments that are not kind at all to our family or to us, to look down upon us, there's still a desire to wish their good to wish that God would continue to show His loving kindness to them, that God would continue to bless them, bring about grace in their life. Even if that grace looks like they get extra money so they can build the privacy fence so they don't see your property and your children running around in their yard. But ultimately, that God would redeem them. It's one thing for them what God has given to you. It's wanting for them what you have come to recognize, your sin and your need for Christ. These passages that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus summarize the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Others have shown this. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last six of the Ten Commandments focus on our relationship with others. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We read that. But John continues on and says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John Piper is known for saying that it is impossible that we can go a minute or a moment without sinning because we are commanded to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind, and we cannot do that on our own. We can't. And so being able to be honest with our condition before God, I cannot on my own obey this one command that you have given to me. May we also be honest before God in this command. I cannot on my own love my brother as I ought, as myself. I cannot with everyone who is around me wish their good. There are times when I do wish their evil. Lord, help me to love my brother as myself. Because I recognize the connection that 1 John 4.19 makes. That if I'm not loving someone else around me, if I hate my brother, I'm a liar and I don't actually love God. So not only can I not love God fully and truly on my own, but even when my relationship with other is marred, when I actually have enmity or hate towards a brother who's around me that I can actually physically see, and I'm not willing to take care of it, and I don't want to reconcile that relationship, that that actually is speaking more truth than the words of my mouth are speaking. If I say I love God and yet my actions prove that I don't because I don't love other people. Everyone, Jesus says, is your neighbor. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, everyone is your neighbor. Your love for them is to be unlimited. The parable of the Good Samaritan 
There was nothing in common between the Samaritan and the one that he helps along the roadside. They're not like each other ethnically or in status or their situation, and yet the Samaritan is moved with compassion for someone who otherwise would pass by him. It's not true that we should just do good to someone because they'll turn and do good back to us. We do good to someone because God has done good to us, whether someone shows that back in reciprocation or not. The command is not to love so that others might love you, but the command is to love with all that you are, to love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us ways in which application is seen of how to love others. You might know some of these phrases that are given in regards to love. You might have thought of them at one point in time when you were dating or married and wrote them on a card maybe. Maybe you have it framed and put in your house so that your husband reminds himself regularly of how to love you. But these actually come in the context in 1 Corinthians 13 in between two chapters that deal with spiritual gifting. And the differences that we're going to have based on how we see this gifting from the Spirit and how we use those gifts in relation to the church. And it's given here not as a section of how you, husbands and wives, ought to love one another, but how we as the church ought to love one another more importantly than the spiritual gifts and our use of them. That's the context 1 Corinthians 13 finds where it says, love is patient, kind, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The issue is not can we love God or we ought to love God more so than something else. And you are automatically always loving something with all that you are. God calls us to love Him with all that we are, and our neighbor as ourself. And yet the struggle is that we want to love other things. One author writes, since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot love God at all times with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. We cannot, at any given moment in life, actually keep this. But we are headed in the trajectory May God be gracious that we are headed in the trajectory that leads to eternal life where we will for all of eternity love Him face to face in all of His glory and sin and death will be no more. Where we will no longer struggle with a sin that so easily 
besets us, where we will with all of our being be able to ultimately love him with all that we are. I'm afraid that all too often it's so easy to selfishly love God with 80% and still want to cling on to our own safety and security, our own reputation, our, our own stuff, and holding on so tightly that we too, as James K. Smith mentioned that quote earlier, we feel this restlessness and anxiety because we want both to be true and yet only one can be ultimately May God give us grace to continue to see with clear eyes what it is that we are holding on to and loving more so than we love God. How quickly we desire to put ourselves on the throne of grace instead of God. And how quickly we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. How quickly in the way that we think and the, what we are saying and doing are showing ultimately that we love ourselves want our own good, and that being at the expense of others or to their harm. This is the greatest commandment that Jesus gives. From these two, all commandments depend. All the law and the prophets depend on these two. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, when you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is saying on these two, all other commandments depend. Everything else hangs and will be set right. May God give us grace to see with clear eyes when we fall short of loving him with all that we are. And may God give us grace to continue to release those things we are loving and continue to grasp hold, heading in the trajectory day by day, moment by moment, towards incrementally loving him more with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourself. We do this not simply because we're commanded and out of obligation. Well, we're Christians, so we signed on the line, got to do it. But we do it because of who he is and who is the one who's commanding us and all that he has done for us. So who is it who's commanding us? Well, Jesus gets to this in the next question. We looked at the greatest commandment, now we see the greatest offspring. Jesus has been asked several questions. So while the Pharisees, I love how Matthew puts this, so while they're still there gathering around, Jesus decides to ask them a question. Three hostile questions with the evil intent to trap Jesus have come his way and failed to defeat him. He always had an answer. And the answers that he gave impressed the crowds and left his questioners with nothing to say in return. So now the sequence of direct dialogue between Jesus and the Jerusalem leaders ends with Jesus himself now taking the initiative and asking a question which they in their turn will be unable to answer. If you remember, the last few weeks they've asked him about paying taxes, resurrection and marriage and now a question on what is the greatest commandment in the law. But Jesus turns and asks them a central question, a foundational question on the origins of the Messiah. Who is the Christ? You notice the Pharisees respond with a traditional answer, that he is the son of David. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? From this question, Jesus surmises whether they see him as 
having divine origins or human, merely just human origins. And the Pharisees respond with a traditional answer that he is the son of God. God promised an heir to King David that would come from his line and rule and reign forever in the line of David from his throne. Matthew begins his gospel account saying just this. Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The crowds call Jesus the son of David as he enters Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, probably just a couple days before this conversation. Matthew 21, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Several other times in Matthew, people cry out for the son of David to have mercy on them. As, he wants to be, as they want to be healed or have Jesus come and heal someone that they love. So Jesus asked them another question based on their traditional answer that they gave him. They gave a textbook answer and Jesus responds with another question. If your answer is true that you gave and the Messiah is the son of David, then what about another scripture? Psalm 110, where David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord. So if David is seeing two Lord figures here, Yahweh, the relational God, the great I am, calling someone else a Lord, my Lord, Adonai, then that Lord is greater than David. Both of these figures seen as Lord, one of them has to be, both of them, excuse me, are greater than David. David calls this Adonai his Lord. It seems then that since Jesus is using Lord or Adonai from Psalm 110, that he is giving the Lord origins that are greater than David, and yet still recognizing a relationship of Lord-servant family line that exists. So yes, there is relationally son of David, and yes, so much more. The argument is not that the title son of David is wrong, but that it is inadequate. The Messiah is the son of David, but so much more. He is the Lord. He is David's Lord. And if David spoke of someone else as his Lord, it might seem a reasonable assumption that he's speaking of the Messiah. Who else under God was above David? Psalm 110 is one of the most widely quoted Old Testament uh, messianic texts that are given in the New Testament. But if we take a moment and turn to Psalm 110, we'll actually read the psalm, all six verses of it, and see the character of the Lord. Both names, the Lord, Yahweh, and Adonai, are continued on throughout the psalm itself. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's a level of exaltation, of position that is given from one to the other. Yahweh says to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until a time comes when I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That comes from Hebrews, doesn't it? Where Jesus is mentioned as one priest greater than Melchizedek and greater than the whole priesthood. Verse 5, the Lord Adonai is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Christ has greater origins than being the son of David physically, but he is the divine son of God. And Jesus wants to get to that point with these Pharisees. How can it be that David would speak of this one as Lord? Because the origins of the Messiah are greater than what the Pharisees were expecting. This one is not merely the son of David, but he is the son of God. So if David calls him Lord, it's because he is his Lord. Matthew 26, later on in the story, a couple chapters later that we'll see in a few weeks, Matthew 26, as Jesus is arrested, verse 63, it says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to them, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hebrews 1.13 is where we had seen quoted also, where the writer of Hebrews is showing the preeminence of Jesus over all things, here showing it over the angels. He says, and to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is to none of them. To none of them has he ever said that, but only to the Messiah, to Christ himself, has he said that? In other places, we see this same refrain being quoted in Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit comes upon his people in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that we often read in the resurrection on Easter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13 as well. The Pharisees would have recognized this psalm of David as a divinely inspired messianic prophecy. In the psalm, David said that the coming... Messiah will not just be a special human descendant from David, but he will be David's Lord. Because the Pharisees acknowledged the messianic import of the psalm, they did not dare to ask Jesus any more questions. The fact that David's descendant, Jesus, would have a more prominent role and title than the ancestor David further indicates the uniqueness of the Messiah in the greater honor that is due him as the Son of God. Matthew does not say how exalted a person Jesus was claiming to be in his use of Psalm 110. But the psalm itself may well imply the deity of the Messiah, that the Messiah is to be Yahweh incarnate. God himself come in the flesh. Very God of very God. And verse 46 underlines Jesus complete victory in the debate. As it says, no one dared ask him any more questions. 
And for the rest of the gospel, no one else dares ask him any more questions. Jesus will issue woes. He will speak of the end that is to come after his death. And he will, Matthew will then record the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But no more questions here will be specifically given. Now he'll be asked questions as he's arrested and tried. But as Bob read earlier from Isaiah chapter 50, he will not answer, he will turn his back. And his devotion will be given to his father. He will not speak, but will trust in God to deliver him. He is the son of God who has come and given his life for us. He is very God of very God that we read of in the Nicene Creed as we quoted it together. And it is because of that theology that we know to be true, which we can't know apart from learning, studying, knowing theology at all, reading it. So while we must do that, that reading and studying and knowing and memorizing of theology and creeds must drive us to love God more. So that as we read, our hearts are swelled more and more with what it is that Christ has done for us, of the goodness of the gospel and of the glory of Christ himself. So that what often can be said of theology is that it's dry and leads people to cemetery instead of seminary ought not to be true of us as Christians who continue to see the person of Christ and how these things that are spoken of him are true and the glory of all that he went through that we might know him, be known by him, and love him. And we love him because he has loved us and he has shown us. And because of who he is, that love is manifested to us in a much greater way. It means more because of who he is. Because of who Christ is, our hearts ought to be drawn more to him and away from stuff and things and other people that would keep us from loving him more. Because when we love him with all that we are, we will love people as we ought. So in closing, Son of God, have mercy on us when we fail to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Son of God, have mercy on us when we fail to love our neighbor as we ought. And Son of God, have mercy on us when we demean your status as Lord and place ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. Let us pray. Great Father in heaven, thank you for the sending of your only son, Jesus, to redeem sinners of whom we are chief. To not leave us in that position, but to see honestly with eyes that pierce through our own hearts and marrow the full extent of our own depravity of our own desires to do, love, be our own Lord and Master and Ruler. 
Father, instead this morning, would you continue to swell our hearts with love for Christ because of who he is and what he has done for us. And that in the swelling of our hearts for Christ would push out other concerns, other issues, other desires that need to be pushed out, to be put in their proper place so that Christ will be in his proper place. He is the Lord of all the universe, and we desire, our heart's desire is to make him the Lord of our lives. So, Father, would you continue to do just that, that you would be pleased uh, by our hearts and how they are postured towards Christ, pleased and honored in how our hearts are postured and loved towards our neighbor. And when you continue to bring about their good, those who do not currently love you, who might not even like us, that we might struggle to like, but bring about their good. May we be praying for their good, that they would come to know you and love you, and that their hearts would swell with a desire for you because of who you are and what you've done, and a desire that your kingdom would advance in their own lives for your glory and for our greatest joy to be found in Christ. Father, continue to work through us this morning as we pray, as we meditate on what we've heard and read already, sung even this morning, and as we continue to sing. May it be for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.